Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 86 of the Intercooler Podcast. I'm Dan Prosser, joined once again by Andrew Frankel. Uh, now, Andrew, this is going to become customary, isn't it? The first thing we're going to do with these podcasts is thank our podcast sponsor, JBR Absolutely. Capital. Um, yep. Yeah, so we've, having done this podcast for the best part of a year and a half, we now have a proper podcast sponsor. So we're delighted to have JBR Capital on board, one of the UK's leading specialist car finance companies run by petrol heads like us, for petrol heads like us. So if you're looking to fund your next classic sports car, supercar, or even hypercar, just try JBR Capital. They're at JBR Capital on social media and jbrcapital.com online. I'll put links in the description, in the description of this uh, episode yeah. so you can find them easily enough. Um, uh, so the, the last thing on them, which, which is what well, I like about them, is they don't do anything else. It's not mm-hmm. like financing interesting cars is one of the sidelines or even their core business. It is their business. They don't do anything else. So, um, yeah, go and check them out. Yeah, the minimum amount is £25,000 and the average amount is £80,000. So, yeah, we're very pleased to have JBR Capital with us. So thank you to them. But also thank you to everybody, specifically in the last week or so, if you followed the Intercooler on Instagram, um, because we've just ticked over 50,000 followers. Um, I don't know, Andrew. I mean, <laughs> readers, yeah. I, I, that, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because in the world of social media where the Kardashians have 100 million followers, it's, it's not an enormous number. However, what's important about our following is that it's a decent size, but it's, it also seems to be the right people, people who really want to engage with us, talk about cars in a, a sort of more grown-up, and sophisticated way yeah. yeah it's and we're not just sharing stolen pictures of lamborghinis crashing or whatever um so it, it's it's a good size following but also a really decent high quality following i think yeah and you know i i i'm always more i mean it's it, it's it's a nice sort of little landmark on the way isn't it um and it's great that we got there um we ain't gonna stop there um not by a long chalk um but as you say it's the quality not the quantity of the following which um interests us most and, and and you can just you know yeah just go and look at the comments that you get 
uh, from almost everybody. Um, and then compare those to the comments that you get on, you know, many other automotive websites, which just seem to be forums for people to sort of vent their spleens. And we've never been that. Um, we never want to be that. And uh, so to each and every one of you uh, listening to this or otherwise, uh, we're just we're just really grateful that, you know, you find what we do sufficiently interesting to, you know, to be one of our you know happy communities. So uh, long may it last. Yeah, indeed. Um, now, this episode of the podcast is about criminals in motorsport. Um, to make sure that we don't get sued, we're only going to be talking about convicted criminals. Um, we won't yes. be talking about alleged crimes or any rumours of wrongdoing. Um, but before we get stuck into the meat of this episode, we've just got a handful of other things that we need to rattle through quickly. Um, the first of those is a very special new Ferrari, the Daytona SP3. Do you have a view, by the way, on Ferrari reusing the Daytona name? Not reusing it. They've never used well, it. Well, that's a good point. They are now using it. Yeah. Um, I think I, th- I think it's fine. I think it's absolutely fine. Um, uh, you know, the name, despite the fact it was never used by Ferrari, is synonymous with Ferrari. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, it would be great, wouldn't it, if, if car manufacturers could think up, you know, new and wonderful names for their cars. But, you know, as we all know, as we know from trying to find, you know, a name for for what was Drive Nation is now the intercooler. Everything's been trademarked. Um, <laughs> it's almost impossible to find something. Well, you, you can go and construct something absurd, um, mm. but then you'll just sound silly. Um, or you can use numbers or letters, or you can, you know, use stuff that resonates with stuff you've gone in the past. And I, I completely, I completely get why they've done it. I think it's, I think it's nice actually. I think it's, you know, that that name is. It's not like it's some they've appropriated it from somewhere else and don't deserve it. That name is, you know. I think when people hear the word Daytona, I think they actually think of Ferraris more than a uh, a racetrack in Florida. So, um, yeah, I think it's absolutely fair play. What do you think of the car itself? I'm going to be quite cautious in judging it, how it looks at least, because I've only really looked at it on, you know, my smartphone screen. Um, I think from the front, it looks like there's a hell of a lot going on. I love the rear Mm. with those sort of horizontal strakes all, you know, across the width of it. Um, But I just want to see it in person, see it rumble down the road, you know, and actually get a sense of what it looks like. But it's it's not, sorry, it's not to me an instantly beautiful car. I remember when I first saw, you know, 458 or LaFerrari and you just instantly think, wow, that's something. Uh, and I look at this and the front of it looks a bit plain and the back of it is the back of it is in, very, very interesting. But I mean, like you are, I was just until I see it in the flesh. Um, but um, it's not one of those cars that leaps out of me and thinks, wow, this is like, you know, a new level for car design or, or anything close, to be honest. However, it does have a carbon tub. Um, as I understand it, it's the LaFerrari Aperta carbon tub. So the open uh, topped car. Um, yeah. With an NAV12, no hybrid system, 829 brake horsepower. Yeah. I mean, that's fairly extraordinary, isn't it? It will be an well, exciting thing, I'm sure. Oh, of course it will be. It'll be. But does it really, with these cars, with these limited edition hypercars, you know, and, I, and I'm sure it gets more difficult every time um, to do it. Um, but they're making 600 of these things, all 599, which is, which is quite a few cars, isn't it? Um, and at two million pounds each and i'm just wondering again we must reserve judgment you know until if we get to drive it um but i'm just wondering what is so different about this car compared to a laferrari aperta which to me is a much prettier car it's a more powerful car um 
Yeah, I'm 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 still I'm trying to understand this car's position. I mean, the SP1 and the SP2 are just mad. So I get where they're from. They mm-hmm. they are just extraordinary visual statements. This to me is not an extraordinary visual statement. Uh, in terms of what's underneath it, you know, the mid-engine V12, well, they've done that once before. Um, you know, it's not super, super lightweight. Um, I think it's 1,400 and something kilos dry, which means it'll be 1,500, 1,600 kilos, you know, so that's, you know, that's good, but it's not, you know, out the park. So I'm just for myself, I'm just trying to understand what's so very different about this car um, to justify that price tag. Um, and I'm not quite there yet, if I'm honest with you. Yeah, interestingly, it belongs to that Icona model series, like the SP1 and the SP2. So it doesn't, in Ferrari's eyes, it doesn't sit in the F40, F50, Enzo, LaFerrari bloodline, does it? So it doesn't, no. it doesn't follow on from the, the LaFerrari. So yeah, so what actually is it doing? Does it further the game in any way? Or does it just generate a billion dollars in revenue for Ferrari. Well, it, 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 it definitely does that. And I've never been critical of car manufacturers can do that. I think if you know, car manufacturers can build cars that their customers want to buy, I think they should get on and do it. Um, but as, as general, I always, you know, particularly when you're talking about, you know, telephone number prices, I always look for what's different about it. Um, you know, it, it's not even particularly rare. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that they'll make more, sp3s and they made sp1s and sp2s combined mm-hmm. um the la ferrari i think there was 500 initially wasn't it and then i think there were 200 apertures over that so so there won't be quite as many sp3s as there were all versions of the la ferrari but still yeah i just i don't know i'm sounding sort of similar i don't mean to i just i just don't understand um where the game changes in this. And to, to me, when Ferrari starts charging that amount of money for a car, then to me, there should just be something absolutely extraordinary and different, which that, certainly that company and possibly any other company has never done before. Um, and I can't quite see it in this one. However, we'd like and to have a go. Bang goes my chance of ever getting to drive <laughs> that, but there you go. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, okay, a couple of other things to talk about. Um, on a sad note, Tony Dron passed away last week. Um, yeah. A racer, but also a very, very fine journalist. And actually... I met Tony briefly once, but only since he passed away did I really learn um, much about him. And he was one of these guys. He, he was a properly competitive racing driver throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s, actually, and dicing with um, future F1 stars. I think he was a contemporary of James Hunt in Formula Ford, wasn't he? Um, yeah, he was. And just a, but he also revered for his writing as much as his driving. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, because I... You know, after his sort of frontline career, he became, you know, one of the most um, sought after races of historic cars um, in the world. And actually, it's through in that context that I got to know Tony really well. I mean, we knew each other before because, um, you know, we both read about cars. Um, but, you know, that's where I got to know him as, as, as a friend. And he was, you know, he, he drove for Porsche at Le Mans, not a private team. He drove for Porsche. Um, he won his class at Le Mans. Um, you know, I don't think there are any other motoring journalists. Well, okay, so Paul Fred did, but certainly the British motoring journalists who, who, who've ever been able to say as much. He was a superb driver. Um, he was a fantastic writer. He's also a very honest writer. Uh, and if he saw what he perceived to be inequities in the sport, um, he wouldn't shy from saying so. But to me, he was just he was just the loveliest of bloke. He was one of these people who just didn't understand why we were all just that little bit in awe of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's one of those very rare people, particularly among racing drivers, um, who always want to find out 
more about what you've been up to than tell you what they've been up to. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's terribly sad. Um, you know, we always got on terribly well. He was just a decent, he was just a lovely, funny, kind, decent, generous man. Um, and on top of that, he was a superb racing driver and a top motoring journalist as well. And, and our world is poorer without him. Mm, yeah, he will be missed. Um, okay, so a brief mention for the Qatar GP. I mean, the briefest of mentions because it wasn't exactly a firecracker, was it? But it does poise the championship beautifully. Two rounds to go. Um, just eight points in it between Verstappen and Hamilton. I, may I beg to differ? I think go it's on. over. I think you think it's Mercedes over. have got it, do you? I think it's gone. Mm. I really do. I think that, okay, be a freak occurrences. Yeah. But, you know, Max couldn't get anywhere near Lewis. Um, in the last two races. Um, I don't know where Mercedes have found their performance from, but they've got it from somewhere. And Mercedes just do this, don't they? You know, throughout the course of the se- any given season, they just go on getting better while everybody else is kind of, you know, stood still. Um, and, you know, and I think that Lewis has the wind up. I think he's massively motivated. Um, I, 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 I hope you're right. I mean, you know, I suspect it's probably likely that in... You know, in, in Jeddah, they'll come first and second. And so they'll go into the last round within a point of each other. But that, to me, isn't the story. The story is how much faster the Mercedes is than the Red Bull. I mean, Max couldn't get, you know, Lewis just sort of kept him at arm's length. Um, he was never more than, I think, six seconds. Um, sorry, yes, he was never less than six seconds away mm-hmm. from than, um, than Lewis. Lewis was clearly controlling it, um, not going as fast as he needed to plenty obviously and you know there's nothing i've heard about the circuits to come that suggests that there's something in the configuration i think that red bull did have some trouble with their wing they had to run more wing in the car than they wanted to because their smaller wing was breaking and that sort of thing and you know maybe they'll sort that out um but to me the wind is in mercedes sales at the moment they've got all the momentum behind them um and i personally think it's going to be um, it's going to take something unexpected. Goodness knows that can happen, can't it? Certainly this season, all sorts mm. of unexpected stuff has gone on. But if things play out in the way they can be expected to play out, um, I think it's, it's Lewis at a canter, I'm afraid. But, you know, I've been so wrong about this stuff in the past, so let's see. <laughs> we do just have to wait and see, because it was not that long ago that Red Bull beat um, Mercedes at one of its happiest hunting grounds, Cota, and then trounced yeah. Mercedes in Mexico. Trounced. Yeah. So yeah, I just yeah. don't know if, you know, if there's something about the Jeddah circuit that happens to suit the Red Bull, perhaps it will swing back the other way. But you're quite right. We don't know until that happens, which is why we're all going to have to tune in. Um, yeah. That's just the way it should be, isn't it? Yeah, but, but think about, just think back to Interlagos, which was, you know, that's meant to be a, a Red Bull circuit. It's at altitude, yep. okay, it's not a crazy altitude like Mexico. But the thought was that, you know, they go Mexico, Interlagos, which would play to Red Bull, and then the last three would either be on as even or slightly favoured Mercedes. Mm. <laughs> it's great that it's keeping us guessing even at this point and when I say mm, it's not because I don't want Mercedes to win per se I just want the fight I just want there to be I want to go into that last race and not have a clue who's going to be world champion mm. um, and I think sadly I think with two races to go I think I already know it's been a long time since we had a final round showdown so let's just hope that's what yep. we get okay all right well let's start talking about some criminals shall we We'll um, go on then. Do you know what? When you start digging into this topic, cr- crime, criminals in motorsport, criminal behaviour in motorsport, <laughs> there are quite a few examples. Um, it's concerning, actually. You don't have to look that far. 
very often it's in the drug smuggling, money laundering worlds. And I, you sort of sit back and wonder, why? Why does this happen in motorsport? And I suppose it's because it's a very expensive game to play. Um, it's glamorous. I think, it, I think it's also a very good place to wash dirty money, isn't it? That's the main, main aspect um, of it, surely. Yeah. I mean, I think you've got to want to do it. But, you know, you've got, you know, a few millions of ill-gotten gains. Um, you know, where better to recycle that than through, um, than through motorsport? Um, and I think, well, we've seen that all over the place, down the ages, haven't we? Mm. Yeah. Um, now, Pablo Escobar actually isn't one of the examples that I'm going to give because he, it's not like he w- was very heavily involved in motorsport, but he did race. Um, and he had an ex-Emerson Fittipaldi uh, 911 RSR, didn't he? That was actually up for sale on collecting cars recently. Um, I'm not yeah. sure if it sold, but... I, just, I had no clue that Pablo Escobar raced. Can you just imagine no, no. scrutineering his car or going up <laughs> against him wheel to wheel? <laughs> you, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, your rain light's not working. You can't race. Oh, sorry, Mr. Mm. Escobar, actually you can. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to give you my first example. Um, Go on. And before I tell you his name, I want, you, I want yeah. to tell you that he didn't start racing until he was 24. Um, okay. So pretty late. Uh, in motorsport terms. Um, in 1984, he won the IMSA championship in North America as a privateer. Um, his yep. team was Blue Thunder Racing. Oh, I know you're talking they, about. And they raced the March with a Chevy V8. Um, yeah. And this chap actually beat Derek Bell's works or works-supported Porsche. Um, yeah. So clearly a decent operation, clearly a good driver. Um, yeah. And his real dream was to go and win the Indy 500. Um, And in 1986, he was the rookie of the year at Indy. He finished 10th overall, the fastest quality time for a rookie with a 210 mile an hour lap. So this guy, given he had no background in the sport, clearly a pretty decent driver. Um, Uh, It's just a shame that he funded all his racing through a massive cannabis smuggling operation. I mean, (laughs) massive. So we're going to say his name now? Yeah, we can say his name now. Randy Lanier, or was it Randy Lanier? Lanier. Yeah, Lanier, I think. Yeah, um, there is, to anybody who's interested, um, once you've listened to Dan and I blithering on about this, uh, if you've got Netflix, I think it's a series called Bad Sport, isn't it? Yeah. There's one that's dedicated to him. Um, it's absolutely eye-popping television. <laughs> um, the, the extent of this man's criminality... Um, I, I wrote it down somewhere the size of his last, hang on, where is he? Yeah, so his, his biggest haul was, I haven't done the conversion, £165,000, that's LBs, not sterling, mm. by weight of marijuana smuggled into the US. A hundred, I mean, how many tons is that? 70-odd, I think. It's ridiculous. So it's a heck of a lot. Um, and he he started off smoking cannabis uh, in Florida uh, just as a kid and then just started selling a little bit here and there. Um, and he just got more and more and more involved in it. And his operation just grew and grew and grew. Um, and he was smuggling cannabis, um, Colombian cannabis, I think, from the Bahamas in boats. Um, and he, he just kept growing his operation to a point where he had effectively a cargo ship modified with a false bottom in the hull. Um, so there's a concealed compartment where he could just stuff tons and tons and tons of marijuana um, and bring it to shore in, in the US and just make offensively last, large sums of money. This was how he funded his racing career. And over a number of years, he 
he imported tens and tens of millions of dollars worth of cannabis. The FBI were onto him. I suppose it doesn't help, really, does it, that he made himself a very, very visible person by doing things like competing in the Indy 500. Um, and he was eventually arrested. Um, and just before his due-to-be sentence, he disappeared. Um, and for the best part of a year, he was on the run. No one knew where he was. Um, Monte Carlo, uh, then Antigua. Um, and in 1987, he was rearrested and convicted to life in prison without parole. Um, yeah. And he served a very, very long sentence. And it was in 2014 that he was actually pardoned by the Obama administration. I think the administration wanted to pardon all these um, convicted criminals who were on very long, long or life uh, sentences, but who were not violent criminals. So Lanier, yeah. along with many other people, um, got released early. Um, and actually, there, if you do watch that bad sport episode, there is a, a sort of very dark side to all of this, as if drug smuggling wasn't dark enough. There, is, there was an alleged incident, incident um, on his cargo ship. Nobody was ever charged with this. We don't actually know if it did happen, but it's, it's a significant part of the documentary, so it's worth saying here. So as I said, that cargo ship of his had a false bottom, and one time um, the seals failed, and a lot of water got into the compartment, um, presumably ruined a load of the cannabis. Uh, but wet cannabis releases methane. And so when two guys used blowtorches to open up the compartment, allegedly, supposedly, there was an explosion and they were killed. Lanier says that he didn't witness it, wasn't aware of it happening. But there is someone else, another contributor to the episode, who is absolutely adamant that it happened. Um, I suppose it's just a reminder, actually, that that sort of criminality... I mean, it's pretty dark, isn't it? It's, it's not like it's victimless in any way. Yeah, we shouldn't be celebrating I mean, Randy Lanier. No, not in the least. Uh, it's I, I put out a tweet about just, just having seen the documentary um, and just recommending people should do it. Um, and you know, in the responses, there were quite a few people who seemed to think that, you know, oh, well, it was only soft drugs, um, you know, good on him. Um, you know, he played the system, made a stack of money in. Um, sort of trivialising his criminality. And I don't want to come over all sort of, you know, fuddy-duddy and, uh, and, and everything else. But, you know, there, there really is, you know, there are no, there's no such thing as a victimless crime. Um, and, you know, A, the stuff's illegal, but, you know, to, but to, to engage in criminality on that level. I mean, one of the other things I find extraordinary is how he thought, given the amount of time he was doing it and given the scale on which he was doing it, the level of self-delusion that must be required to ever think that you could get away with it. I mean, yeah. sooner or later, surely so many people must have been involved. Um, it was going on on such a grand scale and you only need one snitch or one slip up. Mm. Um, and that's it. You're banged up forever. And that's what happened to him. Um, uh, yeah, I've got no sympathy for the bloke at all. Um, but mm. I did. I mean, I, you know, he, he clearly was, you know, a terrific peddler um, mm. And, you know, OK, fine. He, he's clearly, clearly more than capable of financing his um, his privateer team in IMSA and, and, and elsewhere, um, but still did very, very well. Uh, so fair play to him for that. So as a driver, great. As a human being, no time. Mm. Yeah, to be engaged in criminality at that level. There are there are lots of people yeah. left in your wake with the lives ruined and all sorts. So, OK, that's Randy Lanier. Go watch the Bad Sports episode on Netflix if you want to know more. It's an amazing story. Um, but, Andrew, you're now yeah. going to give us one closer to home. Yeah, Roy James. 
Um, he was an interesting one. Roy James, if the name doesn't mean anything to you, um, he was the getaway driver for the great train robbers. Um, so uh, you remember in 1963, I think, um, they stopped the express from, uh, I think it was Glasgow, Edinburgh to London, um, somewhere near Berkhamsted, I think. And they robbed it of what would be today about 55 million pounds. Um, and Roy James, he wasn't, you know, there, there, there was, uh, he wasn't quite the, the main man in it, but he was an integral part of the gang. He wasn't like a sort of side figure like Ronnie Biggs was. Um, and yeah, he, before that, um, he'd been quite a capable up and coming racing driver. Um, he was racing in Formula Junior, he was doing single seaters, and he was absolutely set on making it to Formula One. And his motivation um, for getting involved in all of this um, was that he wanted to finance his career. Because back even then, um, you know, you couldn't just get there on talent alone. Um, and that was uh, what he wanted to do. But they cocked it up um, and they all had to go on the run. Um, and he was he was one of the earlier ones to be caught. I mean, the real ringleader wasn't caught until I think five years later. But he had this sort of they found out where he was um, and there was a chase, chase along the rooftops. And yeah, and they caught him and they sentenced him to 30 years inside, which I think was as long as anyone of the train robbers got. Wow. So that gives you an idea of the level in which he was involved in it. Um, and I think he must have been sentenced in maybe 64. And he got out after, I think, about 15 years. Um, and he did actually try and do a bit more racing after that. But then he got involved in criminality again. And he ended up shooting his wife's father, his girlfriend's father, um, and going back to prison again for another six years for that. Um, got out and then died um, age 61. Uh, you know, and... <sighs> It's interesting if you go. I mean, all those guys who were involved in the great in the great train robbery. You actually go and look at the lives that they led. Even those guys who got away with the money, um, they had a miserable time. Um, it just, you know, despite the fact that I think they each sort of made off with, you know, in today's money about three million quid. It was just there was no way in the world, even if you could somehow justify it morally, which clearly you couldn't. There was no way that it was worth it for any of them. Um, and, you know, least of all for Roy James, who never had the career. I mean, one of the things that they found um, that damned him was, you know, when they finally caught him and went through his belongings, um, they found a piece of paper um, with some expenses written on them. And one of them was uh, expense 1500 quid for a new Brabham, um, which he was going to go off. And I mean, he'd been racing Brabham, so he was going to go off and do all that. Um, but none of it ever happened. So, yeah. That's the um, sad and solitary tale of, of, of Roy James. Similar motivation, really, to Lanier, just desperation to be able to participate in motorsport um, and yeah. going about it in totally the wrong way. Can, can, I, um, can I spool? Yeah, I've got to spool back the clock even further than, um, than Roy James. Um, although one thing I was going to say on Roy James, um, and I say this with slight trepidation because I'm about to mention Bernie Eccleston in the context of criminality, but only because... There was always a rumour that Bernie was involved with the great train robbery mm. in some, to some extent. Um, somebody was once brave enough to ask him about this. Um, and actually, the reason the rumour came about was that Roy James, before he became a criminal, uh, by profession was a silversmith. And when he came out, um, I think he knew Bernie. And Bernie probably felt a bit sorry for him um, and commissioned him to design a trophy which I think was given to the promoter of the year. Um, and I think it still is. And I've seen the trophy. It's not a particularly pretty trophy. Um, but because 
Bernie was connected completely after the fact and not at all at the time with one of the great train robbers, people just kind of leapt to this conclusion that Bernie must have somehow been involved with it. So for the avoidance of doubt, he wasn't. Um, mm. But anybody, I only mention it because there will be people sitting here listening to Roy James and they all wasn't Bernie rumoured to be involved in that. And yes, he was rumoured to, but he absolutely wasn't. Um, anyway, um, so we'll put that to one side and we're going to go back even further. We're going to go back to 1955. Um, and actually, um, the person that I'm going to talk about wasn't technically a criminal. In fact, I think probably an absolute, well, maybe rightly or wrongly, people probably feel quite sorry for this bloke. This is a chap called David Blakely, um, a name which probably won't mean much to most people. However, if I tell you the name of his girlfriend, it'll probably mean a lot to almost everybody. His girlfriend was Ruth Ellis. And David Blakely was the bloke she shot and as a result of which became the last woman to be executed in this country. Um, and that's where I think the sympathy for David Blakely comes from. Um, turns out he was an absolutely horrible person, right. you know, beat her up, uh, a really, really properly nasty piece of work. So I don't mm. want to dwell on him. But again, um, you know, he seemed to be, I don't think he was ever going to be a superstar, but um, I do have a bit of his racing record here. And it's, it's pretty credible. He, he used to race a thing called a, an HRG, and you know he used to win. You know, he used to win. I got his, his record here. He won uh, three races at Silverstone in 1951. He won plenty uh, at Castle Coombe, at Goodwood, Snetterton. You know, and um, he's actually entered for Le Mans in 1955 for the Bristol team hmm. in a 450C, and they did those cars did really, really well. And if you go to the Le Mans records, you'll see that he didn't start the race. And he didn't start the race on account of being dead. Um, ah. But he would have raced at Le Mans. He would have been part of the official Bristol team, which was a pretty serious outfit back then. So presumably they thought he was pretty useful. Um, and anyway, uh, Ruth Ellis finally had enough of um, the horrible stuff that he was meeting out to her and, and dispatched him. And uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's David Blakely for you. Not a mm. nice person. Nobody deserves to be murdered, clearly. Um, but uh, I don't think perhaps he deserves quite as much sympathy as uh, as probably he gets from most people who think mm. he was just um, Ruth Ellis's victim. Oh, God. There are plenty of examples of all this, aren't there? There's, I'm not going to name it, actually, but there's the British touring car team that won titles in the early 90s and unusually did a lot a lot of testing at Zandvoort in in the Netherlands um, which was odd for a British team competing in the BTCC it turns out that this team was actually going over there um, and smuggling cocaine back um, into into the UK by hiding it in gas cylinders used to inflate tires Um, over a period of time 10 million dollars worth of cocaine was smuggled in earning um, the chap responsible a very long stint in jail. Um, yeah. So I'm sure if we dug deeper, we'd, we'd find plenty of others because it does sound like motorsport, for whatever reason, just happens to attract rather more of these sorts of characters than we would like. Yeah, I mean, there were the Whittington brothers. Remember those guys? Mm. They won Le Mans. Bill and Don Whittington, they won Le Mans in 1979. Um, that's the race that Paul Newman came second in, um, sharing a Porsche 935 with, um, with Klaus Ludwig. Um, and they were tangled up in this big um, drug smuggling stuff that was going on at IMSA at the time. Um, Bill Whittington got 15 years for that. Um, his brother Don got a lesser term for money laundering. 
laundering. Then there was John Paul Sr. Come across this bloke. He was all in it too. He he won Daytona and he won Sebring in 1982. Um, and yeah, it's just extraordinary. He got 15 years for what he was up to. Um, I mean, there was a time back then when it just seemed to be so rife mm. um, in racing in, in North America. I'm sure it's not anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure if we dug back even further, we'd find it going on all over the place. There was also a rumour and I know the name, but I'm not going to say it, even though the driver is is now long gone, of a very well-known racing driver um, being persuaded because he had a pilot's license um, to take off um, in a light aircraft from somewhere in Europe and fly out over the ocean and drop a dead body out the back of it. Um, that is all, you know, rumour and conjecture. But, um, yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Oh, it really is. I think we better leave it there before we say something we come to regret. Um, it's an interesting topic, though, isn't it? I mean, there have been some characters knocking around, that's for sure, and not in a good way. Um, do you know what? And that's just North America and the UK. Can you imagine what goes on in other countries around the world? I bet, and I bet even now, I bet there's plenty happening. Deary me. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it, it is one of those things, isn't it, where... You know, there are certain people of certain mentalities and racing being what it is. I think that, you know, you could be attracted to that sort of criminal life uh, and realising that racing is a really good way of laundering that money. Or you can just be so obsessed with the idea of racing that you'll do anything to be able to do it. And somebody yeah. comes to you and goes, well, what do you think about this? And you think, well, it's a bit dodged, but, you know, that means I can finance the next couple of years. And you, know, you have a certain susceptibility to it and, and off you go. And I think with guys like, you know, for instance, Randy Lanier, started quite small and then just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and to the extent mm. to the point where you just you just know they're going to get caught because it's mm. it's just too huge it's just you know it's developed its own gravity it's so big and you know um the inevitable happens and they can't get out can they they have become addicted to it and the moment you've got you know the cost of running an indycar team you have to bring in that next load and it has to be yeah. bigger than the previous one or, or maybe you've got away with it so many times you begin to feel invincible and yeah. you begin to feel that the feds are idiots and, you know, there's, there's nothing you can do which you're not going to get away with. Ah, oh, mind you, um, this is survivorship bias, isn't it? What about all the people who have got away, got with, away it. with it? <laughs> yeah. They'll be out there. Absolutely right. They'll be sitting there. They, they may even be listening to this and just grinning away and thinking, <laughs> ah, if only they knew. Um, yeah, wow. well, maybe. There's a yeah. thought. There's a thought. Yeah. Okay. Interesting one. Let's leave it there, though. Um, yeah. Please remember to rate and review the podcast, everybody. Um, it does really help. It helps us find a new audience, and it just means that we can attract podcast sponsors, and it just means we can put more time into doing this podcast and make it better and better. So, yeah, thanks to all of you who listen. Thank you also to JBR Capital, our podcast sponsor, um, as we said at the start, one of the UK's leading specialist car finance companies. So if you're looking to finance your next classic sports car, supercar hypercar give jbr capital a try at jbr capital on social media and jbrcapital.com online um as ever we'll be back to talk to you all again next week